Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the executive director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that can shape our collective future. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas that they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, Editor-at-Large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Jessica Pierce, an internationally acclaimed bioethicist and author of 11 books about the relationship between humans and animals, including her most recent, Who's a Good Dog and How to Be a Better Human. I'm grateful to speak with her about our relationship to dogs and how it can bring out the best of ourselves. Jessica, thanks for joining us at Hub Dialogues. And congratulations on the book. Thank you, Sean. Thanks for having me. As listeners will know, we speak to book authors all the time here at Hub Dialogues. And I have to say, this book resonated with me a great deal. I have a highly opinionated beagle named Maggie. She's six. I love her. And she occasionally drives me crazy. You have Bella. Let's start with her, Jessica. Tell us about Bella and how your relationship with her roots a lot of your own research and thinking. Sure. So yeah, Bella is, she's... 12 years old now, and we have lived with her for 11 years. So we adopted her when she was roughly a year. We don't, we don't know what her, what her first year of life, life was like, but, um, perhaps rather rocky. She was picked up, up off the street as a stray by the animal control in the town near us. And, um, she has, a, she is a wonderful dog. That's the first thing to say about her. And she's a good dog, but, but <laughs> she has also really challenged my, um, kind of preconceptions about what it means for a dog to be a good dog because she doesn't, she doesn't fit the normal, you know, when you read a, a training book about what the perfect dog looks like, which, uh, incidentally is like 0.0001% of actual real dogs in the world at most. Um, Bella really just doesn't fit. And, you know, in particular, she's she's very opinionated and she does not like to be bossed around. So the idea of training her just like at first, I'm like, it's really important. Everybody says you need to, to really like double down on the training and make your dog listen to you. And with Bella, you know, eventually it it just became clear to me that that was an imposition on who she is and why is it why shouldn't she have her own opinions ab- about things and um you know she's she doesn't like human beings which i i know is a trait that's common to to many of us um but that's been a challenge to live with because, again, you you butt up always against these expectations that every single dog in the world should like to be petted by every human. So, you know, we are often in, in rather uncomfortable situations with Bella where 
there's somebody reaching out to touch her and we're like jumping in between physically um, creating a barrier saying, you know, please, please keep your hands to yourself or you'll be sorry. Um, and, you know, it, it's it's clear to me that Bella is a good dog. Um, she has a, a beautiful heart and um, that and her idea of what it means to be good is just different. And I've had to do a lot of adapting. And um, I think that's quite appropriate that that we need to meet our dogs halfway. Yeah, there's so much there that we'll get into over the course of our conversation. And maybe we should start with the point you finished, because it speaks to the book's ultimate thesis, which is that our dogs tend to, quote, lack an agency. What have we done with domesticated dogs to undermine their agency? And why do you think it's a problem? So, you know, when I use the word captive to describe um, the state of of companion dogs and other pet animals, people get really uncomfortable. But it is actually, um, you know, that it it fits the definition. We keep dogs uh, within the confines of the cage. I mean, the cage happens to be our home or apartment often, although oftentimes there's also a smaller cage within the cage, which is a crate um, or a kennel. And dogs don't have any choice really about what they're going to eat, when they're going to eat, who they're going to interact with, uh, when they're going to go relieve themselves. Um, their their movement is controlled by the walls of the house and then by collars and leashes and by humans constantly mediating, um, telling them what they can do and what they can't do and you know who they can say hi to, who they have to say hi to, even though they might not want to. And, um, it's a, it's a situation that's, that I think is very uncomfortable for dogs because, you know, there's a lot of research from human psychology and also from animal research that, um, points to the, the value of having a sense of control over your own life, a a feeling of self-determination, which is one reason people who are incarcerated suffer. Um, because that is taken away from them. And our dogs are are kind of in that situation. They just can't, we don't allow them. And that's the language is important there. We don't allow them to make any choices or only the choices that we allow them to make. Um, so they they just don't have control over over the shape of their life. Let me ask about another of the book's key insights, which you alluded to in your first answer, that quote, all dogs are good dogs, unquote. What does that mean for those with poorly behaved dogs like me? Have we failed our dogs in some way? What I'm trying to suggest in the book is that our expectations of dog behavior are often really unrealistic and not fair to dogs. You know, for example, a lot of the behaviors that we label as bad are actually dog natural behaviors. Um, and you could take, for example, food solicitation. You know, dogs and humans have evolved over, you know, roughly 50,000 years together. And shared food has really been the locus of that relationship. And um, dogs now have no control over over their their food within a family home. It's all owned, scare quotes here, by um, the human guardian. And when dogs try to get food for themselves, 
we label it as naughty or bad. So um, Bella is a very good example of this. She's a, she was, she's disabled now. So she doesn't have the use of her back legs, but she was a very skilled counter surfer. She's a great scavenger, forager, begging. Again, in scare quotes here, um, begging is, is a form of food solicitation. It's dogs saying, come on now, please. Won't you give me some of that? And it's, it's something that dogs have evolved to be really good at um, and shouldn't be scolded for. doesn't mean we have to like it. You know, if it's a behavior you don't like, just don't encourage it. But um, it, is a, it is a natural behavior. And, you know, one of the things that I found very illuminating while researching this book was a study in the veterinary literature, this big survey study of pet owners and the researchers were surveying owners about their dog's behavioral problems. Does your dog have behavioral problems? And what are, you know, they they gave this long list of possible behavior problems. And 86% of dog guardians described their dog as having bad behaviors, which I mean that's a that's a lot. Like we find dogs apparently very challenging to live with. And if you look at the list of behaviors, a lot of them are like food solicitation or attention seeking or chasing squirrels or pulling on the leash. I mean, they're, they're behaviors that you really can't blame a dog for engaging in because they're dogs. So I think it's, I'm trying to shift the perspective that we have on why we label behaviors bad or good and maybe doing a little bit less moralizing toward our dog, trying to see natural behaviors or pathological behaviors for that matter um, and see them for what they are. Related to both of my previous questions, you argue that we must, quote, let dogs be dogs. You highlight the various ways in which our expectations conflict with dog instincts, including, as you just outlined, barking, digging, food solicitation, etc. Let me ask you to elaborate a bit, Jessica. What do we get wrong or fail to understand? I think one thing we do is we forget that dogs interact with the world in a different way than than we do. Humans are primarily visual creatures and dogs are primarily olfactory creatures. So we might I see this often. I you know be out out about in the world and I see somebody walking their dog on a leash, which is you know, it's legally required where I live. So nothing nothing wrong with that even though the dog might get, might enjoy it better um, being free, but you see the dog stop and try to sniff at something, and the human gets very impatient and starts like pulling on the leash, saying, "Come on, there's nothing there. Um, let's go. We got we got to get moving. Got to get in our a thousand steps or whatever it is." And you know, for the dog, I think what we miss there is that for the dog, that sniffing experience is is extremely important that's like a dog getting on social media checking email p-mail um and you know so for even though we don't see anything there there's a lot of dog relevant information um that might be in a, a spot of pee left by another dog and so reminding ourselves that our dogs need to be able to be dogs. They need to be able to to sniff things in the world, um, even if that's not 
extremely important to us when we're out on a walk. I don't see a lot of people sniffing the air as they go along, but for dogs, that's really important. So just just reminding ourselves that they're a different species of animal with a different cognitive apparatus. Uh, That's such a great segue, Jessica, to my next question, because I have to ask about dog cognition, which is a key part of your analysis and something that I struggle with. How much do our dogs understand, including uh, moods and disposition towards them? I think a lot more than we give them credit for. And especially, I mean, if you think about dog evolution and their the process of domestication, it would have benefited dogs to be very perceptive um, about human emotional states and even human cognitive states. Um, and the better dogs can understand how we're feeling and maybe what we're thinking, um, the better they're going to be able to navigate and kind of take advantage of, in an evolutionary sense, um, their relationship to us. So I think, I think they know a lot. Um, and, you know, not, I, I think it's very individualized. You know, those, I've had plenty of people say, and, you know, this has happened to me once. I remember falling down and spraining my ankle once. <laughs> When I was out walking my dog Odie and I was um I was on the ground, I was like in immense pain and I was like crying out and Odie was just oblivious. Like he was off chasing squirrels or whatever he was doing. He had absolutely no interest in my emotional state at that time or the fact that I might have been hurt. So I don't, you know, I, dogs are not always cued in, or they may just have better things to do. Um it's a really good question. And I think I think the safe and compassionate thing to do is to give them the benefit of the doubt and credit for, for feeling a lot. And, you know, not to, to go on too long about this, but I think that we, we ask our dogs to do a lot of emotional labor, you know, to be there for us when we're feeling sad or stressed or, or whatever. I mean, this came up a lot in the COVID um, pandemic that dogs were being called on to support us emotionally, and that they're wonderful at this work, but it probably takes a toll on them. And we don't maybe give them enough opportunities for what we call self care. I want to ask about how a dog may interpret or understand one's changing relationship with it, maybe to be concrete about it. We got our dog Maggie before my now wife and I were married, and it was just the three of us. Now there are five of us in this household, including a almost three-year-old boy and a almost one-year-old boy. And it seems that Maggie has discerned a change in our relationship. Do you want to talk a, a bit about what your research tells us about a dog's ability to understand an evolving household? You know, there's surprisingly little research on how dogs understand human family units. You know, do they think of us as their pack in some sense? Um, you know, I, th- I think you would find canine researchers really reluctant to, to use that language or go down that path. Um, I think that they are, I mean, by necessity, kind of forced into accepting whatever changes to 
the social dynamics of a household that we decide are going to occur. Um, you know, you don't have a child and then, you know, your dog doesn't like the child. So <laughs> the child is off to the orphanage. Um, although that does happen for dogs, you know. Um, so but I think I think it would really be quite individual to the dog and the family ecosystem. And one of the points I try to to make in the book is that each human home is a unique ecosystem and um, they're dynamic. I mean, their dogs change a lot as they age, you know, so an adolescent dog is like an adolescent human um, with certain challenges associated with that, that stage of development. Older dogs, as they get older, it seems their, you know, personality changes or, you know, just like humans. So it's just this dynamic evolving system. And I think dogs are very good at figuring things out and adapting most of the time. Um, sometimes it probably, the system gets a little too stressed or too um, evolves too quickly for them. One of the striking findings in the book is the scale of anxiety in domestic dogs. That home for me, our beagle Maggie, has been diagnosed with obsessive compulsive disorder that can manifest itself in excessive sniffing and circling, etc. And I've been self-conscious, Jessica, that our hectic lifestyle is partly to blame What's the typical role of, say, genetics versus environmental conditions when it comes to anxiety and other behavioral issues? Uh, that's a really complicated question. You know, I, th I think that like humans, um, it's a combination of factors. There is a certainly a genetic component, an epigenetic component, um, and and an environmental component. And, you know, I think for dogs, you know, one one of the questions that really has troubled me is why. So, well, first of all, are we really having an epidemic of dog anxiety? It appears that we are. Um, one of the studies I cite in my book, a large Finnish study, fourteen thousand dogs at a veterinary practice found anxiety levels in about three quarters of the dogs, like significant enough anxiety levels that they were reported to a veterinarian. So like three quarters of our dogs are suffering from pretty severe anxiety. That's, that's a lot. Or is it that people are reporting anxiety in dogs more because there's been a lot more conversation about anxious dogs and separation anxiety and noise sensitivities and all these different sort of manifestations that an OCD, um, you know, how is that related to to anxiety, um, you know, and and probably as in humans in very complicated ways. So I'm kind of um, working around your question. I know not going at it directly because I don't think I can answer it directly. I don't think anybody can. Um, but it does make you wonder what's going on. And I think part of it is that dogs are under a lot of stress. Um, because of the the intensity of their captivity, um, that they going back to the first point that we discussed, the lack of con a sense of control over their own lives, and also, you know, they're exposed to a lot of um, stimuli 
that you could call like arousing or activating like noises in the home and traffic. I mean, there's been some interesting studies on the role of just car traffic and in, in driving anxiety in dogs. And if you if you look at the research in humans, again, noise, um, anxiety related to noise levels is a serious problem and it's getting noisier, getting crowded, more crowded. Um, and dogs are also, because we don't allow them to be dogs, they may suffer from boredom, frustration, um, and anxiety related to these kind of negative affective states. Um, just from not having anything interesting to do. We might think that their lives are just cushy. They all they have to do is lay around on a on a soft bed and watch TV. And wouldn't we all just love to have the life of a dog? But you know, it's boring. It's not it's not stimulating in the right way um, for a dog uh, to live like that. So I think that's a source of anxiety, too. Sign up for The Hub's free weekly newsletter and receive our best analysis and insights on the big issues and ideas transforming our world. Each Saturday morning, we will send you a compilation of our most interesting and thought-provoking analysis and commentary, along with original news reporting on the people and events driving the public conversation. You can grab the Hub's complimentary weekly newsletter right now by becoming a free Hub member. Do that at www.thehub.ca. Again, www.thehub.ca. Grab your free email newsletter and membership. Act now. You mentioned earlier the incident of people getting dogs during the pandemic. There's subsequently been a lot of dogs either abandoned or spending long hours alone at home. Fortunately for us, I work from home. So Maggie usually has someone here and you know we walk multiple times per day. But what about when we leave the house, Jessica? Do you have a sense of how dogs experience it? I think it depends a lot on what the rest of their day and night is like. Um, and, you know, for a dog who has a really stimulating, like the family is really engaged with the dog and the dog gets to go out in the world and do interesting stuff and get a lot of exercise. Being left at home alone for six or six hours, four hours might be fine. It might just be a good time to chill out and and relax. Um, But for a dog who is left home all day and then the family gets home and they're tired and they don't want to interact and they just kind of ignore the dog. That's like an extended period of isolation. And I think that gets quite hard for dogs and it depends on the dog. I mean, they're, I don't know, we, we tend to say, oh, they're, they're very active dogs and not active dogs, which I think maybe does a disservice to dogs who aren't active. We assume that if they're not wanting to go for a 20 mile run, with you that they're that they don't need any exercise or stimulation but they still do they just need they may need other kinds of of stimulation than like going out for a run they might just need sniffing time they might need to go have a chance to interact with other dogs or 
and just get out of the house. So I think it, I think it depends. I mean, it sounds like Maggie um, may be in a situation where for her, it's just a nice break because you are home a lot and interacting a lot and there's a lot of activity. So I think you can tell and you can put a pet cam, which is, you know, I, I'm quite revealing actually. Is your dog just sleeping or is your dog tearing the house to shreds? The book and your accompanying commentary is chock full of fascinating and occasionally contrarian advice on how to care for a dog. What in your mind are some of the biggest misconceptions and what do you think explains their salience? Well, one of the misconceptions I think is that the more training you do, the better. I'm going to be careful and qualify that. Dogs like, most dogs like to be, like to have interaction with us and they like to be mentally challenged. So in that sense, training, working with a dog, teaching a dog how, you know, what our expectations are and how to successfully navigate our our home and neighborhood environments can be really good. But I think there's this kind of misperception about training that it's this kind of one-way flow of information. Like we have the information that we are like, I know our dog is a robot and we're inputting this information and we're going to get some behavioral output. And, you know, if you don't get the behavioral output that you're expecting, then you, you, you put a shock collar on, or, you know, you, you work harder, whatever that means. And often it means the dog has to, to get punished in some way, or, you know, you use a a training method that uses, um, aversive techniques and, um, those there's, there's so much evidence now aversive techniques, although they might show short-term results, don't promote long-term learning and are really psychologically damaging to dogs. So that's, I mean, I think a lot of people know that, but um, but I still see a lot of dogs with um, what are euphemistically now called e-collars, because it doesn't sound good to say shock collar, but it they work on the same principle. Um, I really don't like bark deterrence and ultrasonic fences. Um, I think there's a widespread perception that those are humane and sort of benign to dogs, um, which I think is, you know, about as far from the truth as you can get. Um, they work again by um, imposing an aversive experience on on a dog. And just to take barking as an example, you know, barking is a natural dog behavior. Dogs bark to communicate. And if you start listening to a dog, barking is pretty interesting, actually. I mean, dogs have all kinds of different barks. They have different acoustic signatures, each each of them. Um, So instead of seeing barking as something that no good dog does, we can shift our perspective on it and say, oh, all dogs bark. It, It can be problematic if dogs bark too much or if they bark at inopportune times like three in the morning or you know outside the neighbor's window in the middle of the night um and i i don't know if this happens in canada but if you if you do a google search of you know violence and human on human violence and dog barking like it's a pretty serious problem and people get killed over it um and dogs get killed over it. 
So it's definitely a behavior that needs attention, but not suppression. We talked earlier about cognition and perceptiveness and our dog's relationship to us. I want to come back to that point. Maggie clearly recognizes me. I think she likes me. I see it, for instance, when I return home after a trip. But what does she think about me? What does the research indicate? I'm not sure we want to know. Um, I don't, you know, I don't think that there is a scientific answer to that question. What do, what do our dogs think of us? Um, it's maybe more of a philosophical question. Um, one of the misperceptions we are under is that our dogs, all our dogs love us unconditionally, um, which I don't think is true. I think there are dogs who get stuck with owners that they genuinely don't like. Um, and they get stuck in homes with multiple dogs where they genuinely don't like the other dog that they're forced to live with or cat or whatever. Um, I think our dogs probably find us, you know, emotionally labile and inconsistent. Can you hear Bella in the background? <laughs> Not right now, no. <laughs> she's decided this is a good time to have me open the door and let her out. <laughs> she, she's, in terms of quirky behavior, when she wants something, she growls. <laughs> That's a good segue, though, for my next few questions, which really is less about what we get out of our relationship with dogs and more about what they get out of their relationship with us. What does the research tell us? Well, I mean, in a... In an evolutionary sense, dogs have gotten a lot out of their association with humans. If you just look at um, how successful domestic dogs are as a species, they're one of the most abundant mammals on the planet, um, alongside rodents like rats and mice. Um, they've done very well. They're in all corners of the planet, you know, in, in ecosystems that are pretty, you know, unfriendly toward um, toward life. And they survive there because they've somehow convinced us to help them do that, to, f to feed them and give them puffy coats and booties and whatnot. Um, so, you know, I think in the broad sense, dogs have, have done really well through their association with us, but it has come at a big cost for dogs too. I mean, if just looking back at the, the history of human-dog relationships, not too long ago, um, stray dogs, especially, were rounded up and murdered in the streets simply for being stray, um, and for there being too many of them. Um, and there's a complicated history there too with rabies and um, dogs as a, a vector for really um, terrible disease. And, you know, even, even now, if you look around at something that you might not think of necessarily as, as anti-dog, but breeding practices, um, we, we inflict a lot of damage on dogs. And I'm thinking here specifically of uh, this, the, the trendiness now of dogs with extremely um, foreshortened skulls these extreme features like pugs and um, boxers, French bulldogs, who have lifelong incapacitating 
health problems. Um, yet we still think it's a good idea to find them cute and make them TikTok stars. So I think that I think it's a really mixed bag for dogs. Um, and, you know, I've thought a lot about the question, would dogs be better off without us? Um, and in fact, one of my books, one of my earlier books with ethologist Mark Beckhoff was precisely on that point. Um, and in many ways, they would be better off without us because we do them a lot of damage. Uh, but I think that's a, a a springboard for doing better by dogs because there's no doubt that humans love dogs and they love us back to a certain extent. And we have a, a really special relationship. There is no other multi-species, you know, interspecies relationship that is like the human dog. And um, I hope as as we move into a, a new future, it's we can play up the good parts of those relationships and and work on downplaying the parts that are harmful for dogs. Do you think we have too many domesticated dogs? And if so, how do we right size what amounts to a supply demand dynamic? Yeah, it's, um, I would answer, yes, there are too many dogs. And that I think would make a lot of people upset to hear somebody say that. Um, and I certainly don't think that the solution is to, you know, get rid of excess, although we do that every day, incidentally. Um, we just, we do have a supply demand problem. We have too many dogs that people are unwilling to give homes to um, and not enough of the super special ones that people pay a lot of money to have, you know, a squished face dog. Um, I think, you know, what, what I would like to see, and this is a pretty radical proposal, but I would like to see deliberate breeding of dogs just stop. Um, and the the current supply, I'm putting supply there in scare quotes, although that is the term that is used in the industry. Um, there are so many dogs currently alive who need good homes that um, I think we could we could balance out the supply demand mismatch by opening our minds and hearts to different possibilities you know if you if you want to live with a dog not having to have x breed or y breed but i mean because you know i think there's talking about misperceptions this this idea that if you get a certain breed you kind of input these behavioral traits like i want a dog who's a couch potato um who has black fur with you know some white paws and doesn't shed and you and you go to the computer and you put in these this algorithm and oh you should get a Bernie's mountain dog or whatever um and the idea that they're going to have some particular temperament or personality you know if you get a particular breed is just absurd um breeds don't have personalities it's like saying all white people or all black people or something are the same exactly and and i think what happens is that people go in having these expectations, which are created by by breeders and by the dog industry, 
And then they end up with a mismatch or with, you know, it's a lot harder to have a dog than you think. I mean, that's the main message that I want people to have is it it's a lot of work and it's a lot of compromise. And it's not just this beautiful furry um, toy perched on your couch if you allow a dog on your couch, which you might not, um, which I think is crazy, incidentally. <laughs> Hopefully Maggie gets to get on the couch. I, I'll, I, I'll show you uh, how dirty our couch is <laughs> when we're finished. Yeah, I mean, people say, well, I want a dog, but I can't stand dog fur. And I can't stand barking. Like, why are you getting a dog? I don't, I don't understand. Get a pet rock. Let me ask you a penultimate question. It'll been obvious to listeners by now that you're not just an empiricist. You're also passionate about these issues. I think you used moral language earlier in our conversation. Talk a bit about the reaction to, to the book and the empirically rooted but ultimately passionate message that it's hoping to convey. I mean, so far... The the reception has been really good. And I, part of that is that I'm preaching to the choir. Um, but I mean, what I wanted to do in the book is say that the basic moral principles that guide us in our actions with other humans also should guide us in our relationships with dogs. And those two basic principles are, are really simple, but very hard to carry out. Um, do no harm and be kind. And, you know, how can we nurture relationships that respect everyone's needs and um, that, that focus on compromise, adaptation, um, and providing dogs the best life we can. And I think that that's what, what people who live with dogs generally want to do. I mean, they really do and it's not easy. It's it's really challenging to figure out what the right thing to do is with dogs. Um, and I, you know, the the book is seventy thousand words. I had a draft at one point that was three hundred thousand words. <laughs> and I'm not just wordy. Um, there's just there's a lot to say. Um, and I don't even take up the the big issues like, you know, shelter euthanasia and dog breeding practices at all. I just talk about your individual relationship with your dog. How can you think about it differently? Um, and how can you just inviting people to work through the challenges that that come up and and see the challenges? I guess that's part of it too, is just seeing moral problems where um where we might not have recognized them before. And I think the more you look, unfortunately, the more you see. That brings me to my final question. What's the main insight that you hope people take away from the book and our conversation? And what should we be looking for to determine if they ultimately do? I think my message, if I could boil it down to one sentence, is that dogs are working really, really hard to uh, adapt to us. And that home environments are very challenging for them. And we ask a lot of them. And that if we love them, we should try to meet them halfway and just see it as a partnership and a collaborative project and be curious about who they are and what they need. 
which I think is hard in a way because dogs are so familiar to us. They're and our particular dog. It's kind of like having a child and they're one, and then the next thing you know, they're leaving for college, and you you don't even quite see it happen. And I think with our dogs, they're so part of our lives that if we're not careful to pay attention, it can just pass us by and we can't, um, maybe won't be as sensitive to who they are and what they need from us as we can be. So I just want more dog, more love, more love for dogs. What a wonderful message to wrap up the conversation. The book is Who's a Good Dog and How to Be a Better Human? Jessica Pearson Bella, thank you so much for joining us at Hub Dialogues. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family and subscribe wherever you get your audio online. We also appreciate your ratings and reviews. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar-Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. The Hub podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky-Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.